we give you our hearts this morning, O Lord, take and seal them for thy courts above, and let the righteous judge judge us by the faith that is in us through Jesus Christ. We are your church. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 5 today. Another installment in the Gospel Tales series. I didn't write Gospel Tales with a number because the Roman numerals got so high, I don't know what they are anymore. So I just, I just know the basic low ones. So just kidding, forgot to do that. But um, Gospel Tales, I think maybe 18. Been doing this a while. Of course, there's a lot of tales in the Gospel stories, isn't there? I would say first, if you notice the cover of your, of your bulletins this morning, your sermon notes cover, very fine picture of the Apostle Peter there, one of the few that survived history, came down to us. No, actually, it's a, a drawing by Daniel, and he drew, that, he drew that picture of Peter for my book cover, and the publisher wouldn't use it, and they were very stubborn about it, so we'll use it. So that's Peter this morning. All right, I'm going to read to you from Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, which follows up what we read from last week. And so Luke writes, And so it was, as the multitudes pressed about him to hear the word of God, that he stood by the lake of Gennesaret, and saw two boats standing by the lake, but the fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the multitudes from the boat. And when he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. But Simon answered and said to him, Master, we've toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish, and their net was breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, the son of Zebedee who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you'll catch men. So when they had brought their boats to land, they forsook all and followed him. O Father, may we be catchers of men. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, that's what the gospel is. Did you ever think of that? The gospel is a net. (laughs) And it brings in the souls. And all throughout the New Testament, that's what Jesus does. He goes from place to place, and these people crowd around. And they're crowding around for a purpose. And so we read in verse 1, And so it was, as the multitude pressed about him to hear the word of God, that he stood by the lake of Gennesaret. And so the crowds pressed about him. And so we have this wonderful account of the Lord Jesus preaching to the multitudes. And they're coming out to hear him preach. And Luke tells us that they pressed about him to hear the word of God. There was a great, there was a great pressing of, of bodies, if you will. And we see these kind of crowds in our days sometimes. You ever see? And we, very recently we saw some crowds like this, didn't we, in the news? Crowds can be unruly. 
They can press in. You might have to get in a boat and go out a little way so you can talk and tell them to calm down. Maybe we should try that. And so we see these kinds of crowds in our day. We see people pressing into a, a movie theater. Uh, I, think it was, I think it was this morning I heard that in the Atlanta airport, the crowds rushed out of the airport because a gun went off. And in this day and age, people panicked and they ran out to the tarmac. I was saying to Karen, I don't think I know where the door is to the tarmac. I've never seen that you can run from, you know, the little chairs where you're sitting there waiting out to the tarmac. But they went out. They heard that's all it took, and the crowds were gone, and they were um, quite hysterical. And who would blame them? They're with their children or their elderly and, or even themselves hiding under chairs. I saw pictures of. Um, but we see these kinds of crowds for all any number of reason, reasons in our day. And there's no calming them when they ha- this happens. They're fervor for their favorite music idol. We saw that. Ten people crushed to death in a crowd. Ten people crushed to death. Coming out to hear, of all things, a rap singer. Of all the things you might give your life for, you wouldn't think that that kind of entertainment would be the last. There's no calming them down there. They're in a frenzy, and the music and the show sometimes is designed to do that very thing. Those in the front press about the stage, and those behind them press about them pressing about the stage. Gets claustrophobic. Anxiety sets in the masses, and they try to press toward the exits, but the idol has let them down. He's led them astray. Their fellow worshipers care nothing for their safety and block their escape. They came for entertainment. They came for excitement. They did not come for bodily injury, and they did not come to die for their devotion, and there's no stopping this pressing. And we've seen these kind of crowds. That's what we're talking about. Now, I've seen these things. I dare say I've been part of them in my in my life, but I also can say I've never seen or witnessed this kind of hysteria of people pressing toward the Lord to hear his word. And so I ask, in our age, where is the pressing? It's in the wrong places. The hysteria has gone out to the wrong places. Where's the hysteria? Where's the excitement to hear the voice of Jesus? Where are the multitudes gathered? What are you willing to press toward in this life? Is it a rock band? How about a football team? You know, I've had friends and relatives get in fights, get beaten up at football games. How about a politician or a political rally? Want to press in for that to your own demise? Maybe a protest against policies. Maybe, maybe to voice your own pet policies. Go out and hold your signs in a great protest. We've seen that get violent and the crowds press in for any number of reasons. There's so many things that people crowd about to attend today, but I see no great crowd pressing toward heaven. There are no great crowds pressing into the churches to hear the word of God. Now, it seems to me that in those places of worship where the crowds are large, that very often they too are there for something other than the word of God. They too are there for something other than than to hear the man of God proclaim the word of God. There's something else there. Many would not press there at all if they, uh, all they could ex- expect is an exposition of the written word. I've had people walk in, and they've heard me begin to preach, and I, and I looked at them, and they realized that they had a script in front of them, a transcript of the sermon, and they looked at it, and they realized, and they flipped through, and they flipped through, and they realized this is going to go on for a while, and they got up and walked out. Friends, the word of God being proclaimed 
by a man ordained to do it is the only thing worth pressing about. And maybe not the only thing, but the greatest thing, at least. I don't say there's no other reason to get out in the street and make your voice known, but people ought to be pressing to heaven. Look around, friends, this ain't it. But there is one. Many would not press in those big churches at all if all they could expect is an exposition of the written word. I'm sorry to say, is that a judgment? Forgive me. Very often there are other things that the crowds press in to see and hear. Even Jesus saw the disciples leave in droves when the sermon got a little harsh and distasteful. He said, eat my body and drink my blood, knowing that anyone who does not eat my body and drink my blood cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And many of them said, this is a hard saying, who can understand it? And they followed him no more. They didn't wait for the explanation. And then the apostles were there. And he turned to Peter and he said, why don't you go with him? Do you you understand what I'm saying? That's a very difficult saying. Eat my body, drink my blood. And what did Peter say? Where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. Shall we go down to the concert hall for the rap session? Shall we go to the movie theater or wait in line for a new iPhone and get crushed? (laughs) No, Lord, we're going to stay. It's you that has the word of eternal life, he said to Jesus. So even Jesus saw disciples leave in droves when the message got too harsh for their ears. Maybe it was too personal. Maybe it was a message on the ravages of sin in their lives or the specter of hell in their future. Jesus only speaks of two places, heaven and hell. All of which are subjects that he chose to speak on. One commentator put it this way that I read this week. He said, this is the disturbing legacy of the 1960s and 1970s. A generation brought up on guitars and choruses and home group discussions. Educated, as one of them put it to me, not to use words with precision because the image is dominant and not the word. We're used to images and we can be bored with just hearing the words. He says they are equipped not to handle doctrine, but rather to to share. Excellent when it comes to providing religious music, drama, and art. Not so good when asked to preach and teach the faith. And that is the legacy that we have today. Make no mistake. Now, I'm not decrying good music and worshipful hymnody. I think it's a wonderful thing. I love it. I'm merely pointing out that such things are a part of worship, and they're not the whole of it. I have people still say... Um, who's your worship leader? And what they mean is, who's the band leader in the church? When they say that, that's what they mean. And I say, Pastor Billy's a worship leader. He leads the whole worship, all of it. He tells us what songs to sing. You you know, generally, we think the worship leader is the guy that, that gets up and talks when you're going like this for an hour. And they recognize that when that's over, the, the nomenclature today is, well, then the worship's over. Friends, the worship, part of the worship is pressing in to hear the word of God. What do you think? The worship got over after the songs and now we're just here and biding the time and Dan has a few things to say? You know how he is. Go on forever. No, I love good music. The better it is, the more I love it. And I love our liberty in Christ to include all sorts of expressions with regard to types of music and variety of instruments. Even though some of our Reformed brothers and sisters of the past didn't allow instruments. They thought it was ungodly. Spurgeon, for one. But so long as each is Christ-centered and not simply there as an opportunity to entertain, but to worship, I think it's good. You know, I grew up in the Catholic Church. In the Catholic Church, we had singing. My grandfather was a great singer. 
Maybe you didn't know that. Locally, he was a great singer. They, they asked him at weddings to come and sing Ave Marie and all that. But when you were in the Catholic Church, you were sitting like you're sitting, and the music was up in the back. You didn't have the rock star up there with the go-go boots and the tambourine and the electric guitar. You didn't have that. You didn't get to show off. It wasn't about you. That's why. It was about the worshipful music, and it was in back. And I remember as a kid, like, looking up. You know, the adults are all up here, and you're looking up. You can't, couldn't see enough. Barely see a few heads up there. Who's up there? That strange place in the back. So I'm not talking about not having all these things. I'm just talking about the reason we press into the, into the household of God, into the house of God on a Sunday morning, is to hear the word of God, just as these multitudes pressed around Jesus on that day. And if I have to, well, we'll get a little boat, a little moat, and I'll row out a ways, and then I'll preach the word. I want to be just like Jesus, but I'm, what am I saying? I'm merely saying that we're preachers. That's the principal part of worship. We're not song and dance men. I don't have a cane and a little straw hat and some taps on my shoes up here. That's all I'm saying. John the Baptist was not a singer or a guitar player. It's kind of a silly thought when you think about it. The Apostle Peter was not a vaudeville act. Paul and Stephen and Philip the Evangelist were all preachers. The Lord himself was a preacher. And so the crowds came out to hear them. They expected to hear the word of God when the man of God got up to preach. They expected that. They expected him to be prepared and not have wasted away his time not preparing. So when the crowds came out to hear him, they wanted to hear the word of God. That's why they came. That's why they pressed toward the Lord. They would not miss a word. In fact, we might conclude that given the things our society is willing to press toward, that they press toward hell and death and damnation. But if they were pressing toward Jesus, we wouldn't see the nation in the state it's in today. We wouldn't see the churches in the state they're in today. Our families would not be in such a state of turmoil and decay as we're seeing. Friends, if we were pressing toward Jesus, husbands and wives would be forgiving one another and pulling their children in, not divorcing one another in record rates. Our society needs to press toward Jesus and the Word of God today, friends. That's where the peace is. And friends, that's where the joy is. That's the joy you can keep all day long. It isn't just the joy you got when you were standing in the crowd clapping your hands. It's the joy that comes to you in quiet places, in secret places, in secret places in your soul. If our society would press toward Christ and risk their own safety to hear the word of God and to preach it, we would not be in such a state of confusion as we are about the simple things of life. I've never seen such confusion. We would all know up from down if we were pressing toward Christ. We would all know male from female. We would know right from wrong, peace from violence, truth from falsehood, and heaven from hell. We would know the difference if we were pressing toward Christ. Where's that great cloud of witnesses the writer of Hebrew talks about when he wrote, we see we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. In other words, leave your stuff behind. Leave your sin behind. And run with endurance the race that is set before us looking unto Jesus. And so we see the Lord communing with commoners. He seldom went to the high and mighty. He did when he had to. But friends, he was, he was content to come out with tax collectors and sinners and fishers of fish, <laughs> right? People like ourselves. 
The multitudes are so numerous at this point in his ministry that no house could hold them. Peter's house had a big hole in the roof, if you remember. Go back to Mark 2, 1 and 4, and you'll see what I mean. That was Peter's house, and they, they couldn't get in. There were so many people pressing in. They tore the roof open and, and let the uh, crippled man down on his bed into the room so he could be near Jesus. I always wonder what Peter said about that. Lord, what about destruction of property? Repent of that. No, Jesus said, take up your bed and walk. We'll take care of the roof later. Peter's house couldn't stand another onslaught of hysterical crowds. <laughs> and so what does the Lord do? He went out to the lake to preach. And why not? He preached on a mountain, right? There's a sermon on the mount. Why not preach at the lake? Why not preach in the boat? The whole of creation becomes the church of Christ and an opportunity for illustrating biblical truth. Consider the lilies of the field, he said. Consider the birds of the air, he said. Every place was his church, and everything in creation was a subject for a sermon with the Lord. Now, a point of uh, textual analysis here. In case you notice, in terms of strict chronology, I hold to Mark's gospel as the standard. And if that's true, then this passage of Luke uh, that Luke has following the last may have actually preceded the last passage from last week. Um, and Matthew Henry tends to agree with that. He wrote this, The passage of the story fell in order of time before the two miracles we had in the close of the foregoing chapter and is the same with that which was more briefly related by Matthew and Mark of Christ calling Peter and Andrew to be fishers of men. So there is some difference in the accounts, just so we're aware. But whichever version we adhere to, the meaning and the power of the passage is the same. And that is that Christ comes in among the common people and is content to have them physically close to him. Christ didn't mind the people pressing in. Remember when he was going to Jairus' house to heal the daughter and they were pressing close to him and pressing close to him and suddenly he turned and said, power has gone out from me. Who touched me, he said. And the apostle said, how can you say who touched me when everyone's pressing so close? He said, no, one touched me with faith and drew power out of me. And the woman with the flow of blood was there and she was healed. And she wasn't supposed to be out in public because of her condition and the laws of cleanliness of that time. But she was out there and she was healed by Christ and given faith to heal. And he was pleased to have the people press into him. She thought, if I could only touch his garment, get close enough, maybe I could be healed. And so they came, they think, would hear the healing message of the gospel of Christ. And just, so, just as Jesus blesses us with spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he's sealed us for eternity, and by faith in Christ we know beyond shadow of a doubt that we'll be in heaven with Christ at the end. Friends, death for the Christian... It's like taking off your coat, unburdening yourself, and moving on to a new place. That's what it's like. And so he blesses us with spiritual blessings, but he doesn't forget the physical blessings we need. Remember the 5,000 people and the loaves in the wilderness? And so here he, they come to him to be made whole, to be healed, to have our needs supplied, maybe fill our boats with fish, Right? Have the labor of our hands for which we toil night and day be requited with plenty, even superabundance. Jesus isn't a scanty blesser. Paul wrote of this very thing to the Corinthians. He said, God is able to make all grace abound toward you that you always, having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance 
for every good work. Now may he who supplies seed to the sower, this is like Paul praying now, may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness while you are enriched in everything for all liberality which causes thanksgiving through us to God. We might be the only nation, I think we're probably the first nation in the world to put aside a day just to thank God. The Canadians do it, but they do it on the wrong day. They did it last month. But just as those who were among the 5,000 who received the loaves and fishes in the wilderness were well supplied, so will the saints of God be supplied in our day. We can expect God to supply us to do the work He's called us to do. We read about it. It said in, in, in Mark chapter 6, they all ate and were filled from the few loaves and the few fishes. They all ate and were filled. It wasn't like, well, they rationed it out because there wasn't that much. It was five loaves and, and uh, seven fish, two fish. I forget because there's really two, two stories, the 5,000 and the 4,000. So forgive me for the moment for being old. But they ate and were filled, it says. In another place, John wrote, they ate as much as they wanted. It's kind of like you guys at fellowship after the church, after the service. Go out and eat as much as you wanted. Those of us who politely wait till the end, well, we'll eat when we get home. There's nothing left. And they filled the boats with fish so that they began to sink. It's like, thanks for nothing. How do I fish tomorrow? But they didn't say that. They knew better. They called the partners over and they shared in the abundance. It just kept coming. I think fish were jumping in the boat saying, don't forget me. Friends, the Lord isn't stingy or scanty with his blessings. And if you want to say you've not been blessed as these have, if you want to look around and say, you know, the Lord never blessed me like he blessed that guy. If you want to look around and say that, I, ask, I warn you not to take that attitude with God. But if you, if you thought about it, uh, that you haven't been blessed according to your labors or for abundance of provision in this life, I'll ask you two questions. Think about this in a first century context, all right? Think about this in a first century context. My first question, do you suppose any of those among the multitudes that day by the, by the lake uh, that we read of in Scripture came home to full refrigerators full of fresh food? How many, how many of them came home to full refrigerators? Zero. And number two, do you imagine that those who toiled night and day in the first century toiled in well-heated and air-conditioned offices with lunchrooms and indoor plumbing? I don't think so. And hand sanitizer. And friends, toilet paper. There's a blessing of God. Did they return home after a long day's work to climate-controlled dwellings in every manner of modern convenience? I think not. You've been blessed, friends. Poor people in the United States, other than a very few have air-conditioned homes and flat-screen TVs and cell phones that cost thousands of dollars and internet plans and every other luxury. So talk to me about poverty when it's poverty. If your answer is no in both cases, and I think we know that it is, then you should realize that you and me and all of us live in a constant state of physical and material blessing that to the first century disciple would be superabundancy above all that you could ask or think. Could you imagine taking Peter or John to a grocery store and bringing the carriages piled with food? Sometimes we get, we get two when we shop for the church, sometimes three. And we go up and we go to the grocery store. And when it's all done, we put a little piece of plastic out there. They must have been like... 
all that food and you don't even have money or a spear or a net or a bow and arrow? Friends, we're super abundantly blessed. Let's not forget it. It's Thanksgiving season, friends. Let's remember this year that, friends, Thanksgiving's not just a day, okay? In fact, it's not a day. In fact, it's not even a holy day. It's a state of being. Thanksgiving in Scripture refers to prayer, prayers of thanksgiving. Gratitude is the attitude of prayer. And if it's not, it should be. And yes, the Lord Jesus does require that we labor long in our vocations. And so we pray for our, as we prayed for our young men today who are learning to labor long, have a great work ethic that they learned from their fathers and their mothers, for that matter. They learned that. They know it's their lot in life. They know it's the way to success and supply. They know that all work is honorable before the Lord. It's called the Protestant work ethic. All work is honorable. And so the Lord requires that we work. He does require that we sit long under the preaching of the word. He's not a Lord, though, who forgets our needs. He's a Lord who fulfills our needs. And I would say that even though we are a small body of believers in the local church, this local church, that all those who suffer lack here or fall behind due to sickness or accident or layoff or misfortune, the local body's there to requite them with compassion from the stores of our blessings. We're sharers. And I would even ask the body of Christ this morning to consider those who are not so well off at this time and to consider them prayerfully and in gifts. Be cognizant of one another's needs. That's what the body of Christ is. Verse 3, And Jesus got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and he asked him to put out a little from the land. So it seems that you got Andrew and, and, and Peter, right? Simon is Peter. And you got James and John. I believe they were cousins, but that's one of my theories. All right? Zebedee was the uncle to two and the father to two. And uh, Zebedee had a big booming voice like thunder, and so he called John and, and James the sons of thunder, Boanerges. Uh, if you go back to Mark, he calls them the sons of thunder, and they, and they all had their particular boats and their particular crews, and they went out, and that was their fishing business. And they went out on the lake of Genesaret, which is the lake of Tiberias, which is the lake of Sea of Galilee, rather. All right? Um, and so they went in. Now, it seems an expedient measure. That was pretty wise, it seems, of the Lord, to push out a little. They were pressing in too much now, all right? Luke wrote elsewhere... If you look in uh, chapter 12, he said, In the meantime, when an innumerable multitude of people had gathered together so that they trampled one another. So it can happen. The Lord was being pressed by the crowd. We've all seen how exhilarated crowds can be dangerous things. And so he gets in the boat. They can press one another and trample one another to death. Even, even this past week, we've seen it. The Lord had the remedy. He had the soon-to-be Apostle Peter, row out a few yards in order to keep a safe distance, and then he begins to preach. It says he sat in the boat. I always picture him standing up, but it says he sat down in the boat. You know, in those days, the people stood up and preachers sat down. We may have to go back to that when I, when I get very old. I don't know. I went to a meeting one time, and Jay Adams was teaching. You guys were there. And he was probably close to 80 at the time, and he had to preach several sessions, and they gave him a, a little, uh, you know, a podium and a, and a chair, and he preached from the chair. All these things were necessary in order that the message of the Lord could be preached. I spoke last week on the necessity of preaching. That was the Lord's stated purpose in coming to us. I must go to the other cities. For this purpose I have come. 
It was the principal part of his earthly ministry, and it's still the principal part of worship and evangelism today. There's always a little preaching. Friends, all of you are little preachers, I want you to know. And it's not a bad thing. Don't preach to me, people say, like it's a bad thing. What else would I do? I have the words of eternal life, if you'd like to know them. So as one commentator said, the 60s and 70s inured us to the sound of guitars and choruses and other such things. I suppose all these things are fine, and I appeal to our liberty in Christ to adopt them for purposes of worship, for purposes of singing and making melody in our hearts to the Lord as we're commanded to do. But let me say that I remember when the symbols of the church were the pulpit and the open book. That would be the symbol of the church. If you had a logo for your church, it might be a a steeple with a cross or it might be an open book on a pulpit. And now what's the symbols of the church? Guitar stands and microphones and drum sets and things like that. The word has taken second place, it seems to me, even in symbology. Jumbotrons all around. You know, I have a friend. He's not a believer, but he has a good friend who's a who's a minister, and he, he went to his church, and it's a, it's, a, you know, it's a bigger place than ours, and it's more modern, and, and he's, a, uh, he's a very fine pastor. I know him well, and I love him, and he loves me. Um, but, they, but they're not centered on the Word in the morning service. They're centered on other things, and they have these big jumbotrons all around, and you can maybe see yourself every now and then, and you know, they're, they're looking at that, and then the words come up, and they're singing for that. He goes, does your church have that? And I'm like, no. So we were instantly the lesser church because we didn't have the jumbotron. So I have ordered a few, and we'll be getting them in. We'll be getting them in. Thank you for your donations. But actually, that's what they were doing. They were advertising certain things that they were selling, which was for mission work and stuff. But the sermon was that big, and the advertising was much bigger. So I want to stress again the indispensable practice of preaching to those who have been saved and to those who are yet to be saved. And remember, the gospel preaching that saved you is the same gospel preaching that will equip you for service in the Lord. It's the same word. That's why Paul wrote, he gave some to be apostles. He gave some to be prophets, evangelists, and pastors and teachers, every one of which is a teacher, a proclaimer, right? And what's it for? The word is for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Now, we're the body of Christ, and edify means to build up. You're building up the body till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure and the stature of the fullness of Christ. And we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of media, of doctrine, it actually says. But we don't have to go back and forth all the time with the world. We're supposed to be steadfast until we, it says we we hear the word of God. It feeds us like food. It nourishes us like food. Take the pure milk of the word, Peter said, that you may grow thereby. It's milk to us. And later on, we're fed the solid food of the word, Paul wrote. It's always pictured as food, building up the spirit of the worshiper. And you might say, well, pastor, you know, this thing about the perfect man, you know, we we, we don't have sinless perfection in this life. I know that. I'm aware of that. Paul knew that. Not in this life we don't. But you know what's funny? We still have a perfect goal. See, we want a goal that we can reach. Jesus wants a goal that we can strive for forever, right? 
It's like, no, no, I'm almost to perfection. I'm just about getting there. Everybody says it. They're looking at me. They know I'm almost perfect. I'm almost there. It's not like that. The Lord wants us to strive. That's why we come and we worship and we hear the word. Friends, it's the word that saves. It's the word that equips. It's the word that brings knowledge of God. And if you're saved, you have no business being content with your initial condition of soul. You're saved and you have a new purpose and it's to increase your understanding of the things of God. You're saved to equip yourself in the knowledge of God. That's why you have a church. Friends, evangelicalism has not stressed the importance of the church enough in my lifetime. It's all about the individual, it seems to me. No, friends, the church is where the gifts are. It's where the apostles and the prophets and the pastors and the teachers and the evangelists are. And it's the place they come to get built up. No, the church is essential. I don't think you can go to Christ in the, in the final judgment and say, I love you, I'm, I'm not partial to your church, though. I love you, but your family irritates me. I don't think you're going to say that to the Lord. No, you're a good guy, but the church is full of hypocrites. Friends, let's get over it. It's full of hypocrites. I'm one. Now let's move on. We do our best, right? So we have a new purpose. You were saved out of your sin, and so the word reached in and saved you. And you were saved into the body of Christ, and so the word is present to equip you and to fill your boat till it almost sinks. And guess what else the word is for, friends? To disciple the nations and baptize them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. That's the great commission of Christ. The church is to disciple the nations. How do you think the nations are going to find out the truth of the Word of God, if not for the churches? When he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, launch out into the deep and let your nets down for a catch. And so what? They went to church first, and then they went fishing. Do you notice that? When he stopped speaking, he said, launch out into the deep. We're going to go to church first, and then you can go fishing. All right? So, friends, the Lord's not averse to taking a risk, a launch out into the deep. He's not a fisherman. He's a carpenter. He might have thought, I like it here on dry land. But he said, launch out into the deep. He has in mind to bless the apostle with a great catch. But the fish he must learn to take, first, rather, he must learn to take instruction from the Lord. The Lord wasn't a fisherman by trade. He had a trade. And in the human sense, I guess he has nothing to teach the fisherman. And the carpenter doesn't instruct the fisherman on fishing, and the fisherman doesn't instruct the carpenter on carpentry. But it's the fisherman that's being trained. He's being tested. He's being prepared for another vocation. There's nothing wrong with fishing, but the fisher of fish must become a fisher of men if he's to serve the Lord. you got to do both. I believe it's the same with us as it was with the apostle. And so I say to you this morning, launch out into the deep. Let down your net. Bring up a full net or an empty one and wash it out and toil all night and try it again the next day. And know that the Lord has already blessed you. Why? You got a boat and you got a net. (laughs) Right? Know that the sinking boat is the blessing of Christ. Know that though the boat is sinking, there are others about you to help you. The partners come in. And the vessels to, they, to assist you in your struggle as the boat sinking and they all save the boat. And so the Lord said to Simon, launch out. You know, that could have been the name of the sermon. Launch out. But Simon answered and said to him, Master, we've toiled all night and caught nothing. He almost wanted to say, can't we just go home now? But he said, nevertheless, at your word, I'll let down the net. That's how I believe he said it. Imagine being all night fishing and then coming up and the Lord says, no, we're going to have a sermon. It's going to be long. 
like the Sermon on the Mount, it's going to be about all these things, and then we're going fishing. Can you imagine? Now, you don't need to tell me what you might have said at this time. I know most of us would have answered differently than Peter. No one would have blamed the apostle for going home and missing the meeting. Where's Peter this morning? Ah, he fished all night. I mean, he's, you know, who could blame him for not being at the meeting? You know, I sometimes think of the things that I do. Let me let you in on a little personal secret. Most everything I do, I do tired. I'm not a good sleeper, first of all, right? Most everything I do, I'm tired. And I'm like, honey, do most people do this much when they're tired? Or they just, like, plunk down and say, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm tired. How many times have you heard someone say, nah, I'm tired? I do everything tired. Peter was tired. It's a great excuse, but maybe it's just an excuse. He might have said, Lord, I've toiled all night. I'm too tired to come to the meeting. Perhaps another time when it's more convenient for me. When I'm well rested, I really need my rest. So I'm going home now. But the disciple didn't say that. He took a risk. He gave it all. He gave it all he had after a long night of toiling and disappointment. But what's important here is they did, he did it all at the instruction of the Lord. Right? Friends, I can't tell you how many times I get up in this pulpit and I'm too tired to preach. You know? And I say to the Lord before I come, I say, Lord, don't leave me there alone. And then I say to you, I'm so glad I don't have to do this job. Because the Lord's either here or he's not. And if you're blessed, it's because he's here. And if it's not, and if you're not blessed, he's still here, but you weren't listening. <laughs> but the s- disciple, what did he do? He took a risk. He took a risk. He let down his net. He brought in the catch. For now your fish is a fish, but I'll make your fishes of men, he said. And the fish you catch will profit. The profit you make in this life may all be invested to bring in the eternal catch of souls. Why do you think he blesses you and your businesses? So you have something left to go out and finance the fishing of men. That's why. The fish will be cleaned and sold and eaten, but the souls you catch in your gospel net will be brothers and sisters for eternity. Friends, you're the Lord's vessel. And you're described that way in the New Testament many times as a vessel, right? Paul says you're a vessel. Jesus speaks of the body as a vessel, right? The gospel is your net. The lost souls of men and women are your quarry. That's what you're after. Nothing in the whole process is safe, friends. You're launching out into the deep. You're tired. It begins with this pressing, though, toward the Lord. That's what energizes the Christian, this pressing toward the Lord to hear the word. It proceeds from there by taking a risk, by launching out into the deep, even though you've known nothing but disappointment in your past attempts at evangelism. I haven't been a very good catcher of men. I've toiled long, but at your word, I'll go one more time. That's what we say. And i got to tell you, a full catch awaits you. The faithful disciple will risk it again. I have toiled much of my life to no avail, but at your word, I'll toil again. Verse 6, and when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish, and their net was breaking. Now, friends, I've been in business my whole adult life. And I've seen so many times of lack. I've seen so many empty nets, right? I've had my share of despair of ever seeing success. And if you'd like to know, I never really made much money in my time, in my life. Never saw those great successes. And I've seen those times that I thought my nets would burst so that even the blessing became a hardship. Too much was almost as bad as too little. 
But in business as in ministry, some problems are more desirable than other problems. Have you ever heard anyone say, yeah, but those are good problems. Those are good problems to have. A good problem here, we're running out of chairs again. They're bursting in, they're pressing in to hear the word. That would be a good thing. Run out of chairs. Next week, fool me. Take half the chairs and put them outside. But I'll tell you this, I really believe that any failure I experience or any scanty returns on my investments of time and money and labor and sweat was because my business was not really my business. The Lord put me here to be a fisher of men, and so I'm still fishing. Our nets are not breaking yet. They're not even full. There's too many empty nets in the room, empty chairs, right? I want to see the ship start sinking. I want to see, Pastor, stop bringing those people in every Sunday. They're pressing in. It's dangerous in there. I want to see the brethren all coming together to pull in a great catch and to see the Word of God do its work in the hearts of men. And that can happen when all the partners launch out together to bring in the catch. That can happen. You know you all have people that needed to be here this morning to hear the Word of God. We all do. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled the boat, so they began to sink. (laughs) I must say that you and I, maybe we're afraid of sinking. In reality, I've never really come close to it, not in business, not in ministry. And I, like Paul, have had to learn to be content with any condition of life. And so Paul wrote, not that I speak in regard to need, for I've learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I've learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. And I think all of us can relate to that. I do all these things through Christ who strengthens me. He actually writes, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Which he means in context, I can suffer need and be thankful. I can reap abundance and still be thankful. Verses 8 and 9, when Peter saw it, when he saw the catch, and he thought, how did this carpenter know more about fishing than all of us? But remember when he said to Peter when they came to the temple one day and they had to pay the temple tax, he said, okay, Peter, go, go down to the sea and throw in a line and pull out a fish, and in the fish's mouth, you'll find the temple tax. How did he know that? He knew a lot about fish. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. So Peter falls down. I am a sinful man. The reason he did that is he recognized this is God right here talking to us, blessing us in every way. And he realizes if he's God and he knows he can fill this boat with fish and we're fishermen and we don't know how to fill it with fish, then he also knows some things about us that we didn't tell him yet like how sinful we really are. So they fell on their knees and confessed their sin. I hope you had your times of astonishment with the Lord's provision. I have had some amazing times of astonishment with the Lord's provision. We've had it even lately here in the church. But keep in mind the double entendre. You know what that is? Communicated in the passage. He's talking about a catch of fish. He's talking about a catch of men. The disciples blessed with provision, and the provision is to assist him in the real catch. And so we read... And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you'll catch men. So when they brought their boats to land, they forsook all and followed him. Friends, their business was not their business. They forsook it and followed him. It had to go through their mind, 
Uh, how do we eat from day to day? Oh, yeah, he increases and multiplies the, the loaves. How do we, uh, uh, you know, uh, supply our needs? Oh, yeah, he just fills the boat with fish at, at his command. How do we pay the taxes? Oh, we go down and catch a fish and it's in there. I mean, he had it all figured out. You follow the Lord, the needs are met. We have a lot of things we can do. We have a lot of things we can say, a lot to share and rejoice in with our friends. A lot of gospel tales to talk about, friends. But we've been entrusted with special words and a special message for the world to hear. And it may be a long conversation or a simple invitation to worship. Come worship with us. Sometimes our witnessing may become contentious. Sometimes there's arguments. It happens. Sometimes we'll endure charges of hypocrisy. It happens. Sometimes those charges will be right. It happens. They may even be obvious. The apostles failed at all these things, but they still brought in the catch. They forsook all and followed after him. They used all they were blessed with to become fishers of men, just as the Lord said elsewhere, go out into the highways and the hedges and compel them to come in because my house will be filled. And he said, those who did not receive the invitation will not taste my supper. Amen. Father, in Jesus' name, bless the churches, we pray. Bless the disciples, O Lord, to launch out into the deep of this world and bring in a catch so that we'll not be able to receive it without the Holy Spirit partnering with us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.